Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On this week's episode of Hell Has an Exit, we take a very special look at the wrongful conviction of Anthony Apanovich. This man has been held in prison on death row for over 32 years for a crime he did not commit. And when the evidence came to light, Proving his innocence and releasing him for two and a half years, the courts decided to overturn his release on a technicality, sending him back to prison where he sits today for over four years on death row. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Wrongful conviction stories have always been interesting to me. It always reminded me of one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, where a guy goes to prison and he's totally innocent. Now, I would think that stuff like that happened in the 1950s and 60s way too often. But I didn't really think about it too much in today's day and age. That is until I started the podcast, Hell Has an Exit. Since starting Hell Has an Exit, I've been able to interview multiple guys who are wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit and spent up to 20, 30 years in prison after everybody knew that they were innocent. And a lot of these guys are literally locked up in jail for just small technicalities. The story that we're gonna tell is the story of Anthony Apanovich, and this guy is literally in prison right now as we speak, even after DNA evidence was presented and freed him for more than two years, and he's literally back in jail because of a technicality. Not just jail, he's on death row, okay? Today we have a special guest, Anthony's attorney, Dale Bosch. He's been his attorney for over 30 years. So in 1984, Marianne Flynn was murdered on the near west side of Cleveland. The police investigation initially stalled out, and it took about two and a half months before the police decided to arrest someone, and that person was Tony Apanovich. Tony had known the victim. He painted her house, and he saw her on the day of the crime. But there was no physical evidence, no eyewitness to the crime. All that the police had was a case based on circumstantial evidence. And at the end of the day, uh, the jury convicted Tony and, and sentenced him to death. Ohio State Representative Gene Schmidt is here to help us understand the policies and process of prison and the death sentence in Ohio. 
I'm a state representative. I served in the General Assembly 20 years ago. Then I served in the U.S. Congress, and now I'm back in the General Assembly. 20 years ago, when the death penalty was being decided in the House, I was uh, very much in favor of the death penalty. But 20 years later, through a series of events, I am now against it. I met Joe D'Ambrosio, who has served 25 years uh, in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and he was on death row. And it shook my foundation. And I realized that it is wrong on so many levels. Went back to the state legislature for several reasons. One was to end the death penalty. So I am the Director of Communications for Ohio and Stop Executions. How did you get involved abolishing the death penalty? Yeah. So I don't have a very special story other than the fact that I've just always been horrified by the fact that our state has the authority to kill people. What is the way, the method of execution in Ohio currently? It's lethal injection. I think there's a, a misconception that lethal injection is just like putting someone to sleep. Mm -hmm. Like I never knew that there was yeah, complications with lethal there's injection. There's complications all the time, unfortunately. Ohio has our own sordid history with botched executions with lethal injection. So this is not the humane, peaceful method that people think that it is. It's its own brand of horrific. She was murdered between 10.30 and midnight. Mm -hmm. We didn't find this out till I was convicted and on death row for eight years. And what's interesting is that you actually have an alibi of witnesses that said that you were at multiple bars that night. Right. They held me for like two days. They said, well, we want to keep you while we check all this out and check. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. You know, they went to my house. They wanted to search it. And I signed off on it. You let them search your house. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Yeah. What criminal would be like, yeah, sure. They would either say, no, let me get an attorney or, or something. Well, yeah. I thought if you're innocent, you don't need an attorney. That's mm -hmm. I mean, why should you? So when I turned myself in, I was asking him, I said, why are you doing this to me? He said, I didn't do it. He said, the prosecutor did. He said, all I did was I investigated the crime and turned, turned the uh, evidence over to the prosecutor. He's the one that got the indictment. Mm -hmm. And I kept asking him, why me? And he said, look, Tony, he said, uh, we had a lot of pressure from the media to get somebody. Mm -hmm. And you look worse than anybody else. I didn't right. expect to get found guilty. I, I really did not think that would happen. You know, over the years of being in recovery and speaking at rehabs and jails and prisons, I've never actually been to a prison quite the one that Anthony was in. Uh, when I got to the prison, I just remember it looking like something out of Hogwarts. And it didn't really look like a prison in Florida. It kind of looked like an old school. And um, when I got to the facility, it seemed a lot more, how could I say, like you don't want to say a prison's nice, but this prison definitely was nicer than a lot of other prisons I had been to. Uh, the warden's assistant was extremely friendly. Uh, this guy was super helpful. Uh, he kind of reminded me of like a younger Jack Black. And it was kind of interesting. Everyone at the prison was kind of happy to have us. And you would think that if someone was in prison that was there, that we're saying is basically innocent, 
Um, you would think that they wouldn't want us there, or that at least that was like my first impression. But honestly, everyone in the prison seemed like pretty happy to have us and was very welcoming. Now walking into the prison, uh, they left us to this visitation room and there was two tables and there was this one section that looked, you know, like great lighting and just looked like a great place to have a podcast. And um, I was setting up the podcast and uh, the tripod and the cameras and everything. And um, Anthony walked in. And when he walked in, it kind of like threw me off guard. I was still setting up the camera, I had my back turned to him. And when I turned around, it just like really hit me like, wow, we're really interviewing this guy, you know? At first, like I tried to hug him and I realized like he was shackled from his, his wrists were shackled to his waist and his legs were shackled too. So he couldn't hug me back. And when he shook my hand, he had to shake it all like awkward from his waist, you know? And that kind of was strange because I've been to prisons before. I've visited people before. And usually when they're in visitation, you know, they're walking around, they're not shackled in visitation. And then I had imagined that he'd be sitting on the other side of the table and they had him sit on the opposite side. And I realized because on the bottom of the table, there was actually this metal hook that they were going to shackle his feet to. So even during the interview, he was still going to be shackled. And that's when I realized like, holy shit, this is death row. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit, and I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Um, Anthony, can you give us uh, some history about yourself, where you grew up, where you're from? Well, yeah. I what grew- your early childhood was like? Well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, mm-hmm. Childhood was great. I mean, it was cool. We had uh, Euclid Beach was open in Cleveland, and we used to go there. It was like 10 cents to take mm-hmm. the ride. It was an amusement park like Cedar Point and all those. Oh, Cedar Point was open back then? Oh, no, but Euclid Beach is just like Cedar Point. Oh, okay. And it was right in Cleveland. I mean, right in mm-hmm. the heart of Cleveland, right on the lake. And we used to go there all, all summer long because it was right in the neighborhood, basically. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, I had a pretty good childhood. It was, mm-hmm. it was okay. Okay. Yeah. And then August 1984? Yeah. <laughs> your life changed. Yeah, it sure did, man. It changed big time. In mm-hmm. uh I had, well, I had been in prison when I was uh, younger. I went to prison for aggravated robbery. Mm-hmm. I got out. I went to prison in 76. I got out in 1980. Mm-hmm. In 1980, I started, uh, well, I, I didn't like prison. <laughs> I realized that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I was working. I was I was doing okay. But I still, I was a young man. I was still going out and drinking and running around and, you know, chasing women and stuff. Mm-hmm. I ended up uh, getting married, and uh, I was driving truck. I was a truck driver, and uh, I got married. My wife uh, had a baby, and I was starting a new business. I was trying to start a, a, a painting business in 1980. This was all in 1984. I was starting a business. Okay. My daughter was born, and my daughter was born August uh, 12th, 1984. Wow, so your daughter was just born. Just born, yeah. And... Uh, August, uh, in August, uh, I think it was August 24th, and I painted her house. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's how I knew the victim in this case. I had painted her house, and, and the day, I guess the day before, the day she was killed that night, I had talked to her about doing some more work on her house. 
I wasn't surprised when the cops came knocked on my door mm-hmm. after she had been murdered. We saw it, yeah, we saw it in the paper. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I'd come down and answer questions. I said, yeah, sure, you know. I gave them blood, hair, saliva. They asked me where I was, where I had been, So everything. before you knew that, you know, that you just were trying to help out. So they didn't give a subpoena. They didn't tell no, you that no. you're being charged or anything. No. You voluntarily gave them blood and saliva right, and absolutely just to help the case because right. you knew you didn't do it so you're just trying to help out i wasn't worried about it yeah i gave him hair blood you know i mean why should i i'm not worried i didn't do yeah. it so go ahead and who would do that like <laughs> right. what what criminal would be like yeah sure they would either say no let me get an attorney or or something. well yeah i thought if you're innocent you don't need an attorney that's mm-hmm. i mean why should you they held me for like two days. They said, well, we want to keep you while we check all this out and check. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. You know, they went to my house. They wanted to search it. And I signed off on it. You for let them search your house. Oh, yeah. No, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. We had no problem with that. And they let me go. Mm-hmm. And that was it. They let me go. So. And what's interesting is that you actually have an alibi of witnesses that said that you were at multiple bars that night. Right. Well, the thing is, though, see, at trial... There's so much I could tell you wrong mm-hmm. about the trial, but I'm, uh, some things need to be come out. At trial, they lied about the time of death. Mm-hmm. They said she had been killed between midnight and the early hours, maybe even 6 a.m. And this is what they're telling the jury and everybody else. Well, my alibi is guarantee all the way up till 2.30 when the bars closed because mm-hmm. then I went home. My wife was asleep. She don't remember me coming in. You know, she was asleep. But uh, the truth was she she was murdered between 1030 and midnight. Mm-hmm. We didn't find this out till I was convicted and on death row for eight years. Wow. So yeah. prior. So when you're going on trial, they're telling the jury that she was killed possibly after 230 when the bars right. were closed. Right. And oh, then yeah. after you're already convicted and on death row evidence is coming out that it was clearly before 1230. Right. They knew it. They just hid that information. Mm -hmm. And that's not it. The only thing, there was a hair, a black Mm -hmm. hair they found. Uh, They they said at trial it was laying in the area of the woman's hands, Mm -hmm. you know, wrapped around her fingers. They made all kinds of comments about it. And they said it came from a detective or somebody. Yeah, it could have been a medical examiner or somebody that it fell off from. But then later on, it finds out that it was actually behind her back, right? Or, some, or behind her hand? Behind her back, under her bound hand. Under her bound hand, so it couldn't have gotten there. Right, so whoever tied her hands, that's where the hair came from. It didn't come from no cop. And it wasn't my hair, that's mm-hmm. for sure, you know? And they even asked you, like, did you dye your hair or anything right. like that? Yeah. They did. <laughs> so they were even asking, like, did you dye your hair to try to get the hair to stick or something like right. that? They, so yeah. during the trial, the hair comes out. And they just say, oh, well, this hair is is someone else's that probably fell from a cop or something like that. Right. Don't worry about that. Right. So yeah. let me ask you, what's going through your mind when you're going through trial for this rape and murder? Um, do you think in your mind that it's possible that you're getting convicted? Uh, not really. Not really. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when uh, when I got arrested for, well, I didn't really get arrested for this. What happened was I, they secretly indicted me. And I never heard of this before, but the homicide detective called me up mm-hmm. 
and said, hey, Tony, you've been indicted. You're facing the electric chair. Can you come down today and turn yourself in? We're going to hold you for trial. And I thought he was joking. Yeah, so uh, nice way to put it. <laughs> so I called a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, I called a lawyer. I said, hey, we check on this. He called me back and he said, yeah, man. He said, you've been indicted. You face an electric chair. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, I'll, I guess I'll be down there later. And mm-hmm. like I told, I told him, I'll be down later on, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took my wife and baby over to my mom's house and, and dropped them off there. And I had my brother take me downtown. That was, I got the call at noon and I went down about 430. Mm-hmm. When I got there, he said, oh, I'm glad you came. I was going to call you, see if you were time, because I'm ready to go home. I mean, this is a man I'm accused of rape and murder. Yeah. And he's calling me on the phone to turn like, my... He, does, he knows I didn't do it. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's so crazy to me, just so people know. So it's like, obviously, if someone's accused of rape and murder, they don't let them know that they're going to get arrested and that they're indicted. Oh, yeah. They just show up to their house with SWAT and all, right, well, yeah. oh, I would imagine, a police force. And they catch him. I and you didn't flee. You didn't make plans of leaving. You're not trying to go to Canada. You're not trying to flee the country. Yeah. You just thought that it's some mix up and you're going to just go and figure it out. Well, I didn't think I didn't even think about trying to run. I mean, I was I was upset that I had to go through it. I was mad that I had to go turn myself in. Because, you know, when you're innocent, you, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You, you, I mean, you can't run. You, you, that doesn't that makes yeah. no sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so. So when I turned myself in, I was asking him, I said, why are you doing this to me? He said, I didn't do it. He said, the prosecutor did. He said, all I did was I investigated the crime and turned turned the uh, evidence over to the prosecutor. He's the one that got the indictment. Mm -hmm. And I kept asking him, why me? And he said, look, Tony, he said, "Uh, we had a lot of pressure from the media to get somebody. And you look worse than anybody else. All your alibi witnesses are drunks. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was indicted. Well, so just for people listening, a lot of people would think like, well, what is the motive for the state or prosecutor to um, try somebody to get someone who wrongfully convicted or something like that? But the way that I see it is that they're just trying to solve the case. So if they solve the case, is, do you think that's their motive? Well. See, the, the difference, there's a difference between the, the uh, detectives and the police trying to solve a case mm-hmm. and the prosecutor uh, seeking an indictment or mm-hmm. prosecuting a case, you know? Like, uh, the reason they need, when, when you get a case, a high-profile case in the media where the media gets all excited about mm-hmm. it, that puts pressure on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, on, you know, the, the prosecutor's office, they're, they're elected officials, see? prosecutors mm-hmm. so they feel they have to get somebody and that's you know that's what they do they you know they look at the worst person like he said i look worse than anybody else that mm-hmm. they had been investigating he didn't say well you did it mm-hmm. or you know you're guilty he said i look worse than yeah anybody you just else. look like someone that would have done it and it's easy for them to pin it on you yeah it was the media pressure pressures them gotcha. to do something it's not like they picked me out i, I gotcha. made myself available because uh-huh. of the way I was living my life. Yeah, sure, I was trying to start a business and I was still driving truck Mm part-time, but I was also out in the bars every day drinking and chasing women and I had Mm -hmm. several different 
girlfriends on the side. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, I was married at the time and had a baby. So I wasn't. An angel Cub Scout. Right, yeah. right. I, but you're uh, also not guilty of the right, crime. I don't, yeah, I yeah exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, what goes through your head during the trial? Because the trial was very quick compared to other murder trials. I didn't expect to get found guilty. I, I really did not think that would happen. Mm -hmm. Not one witness got up on the witness stand and said they see me anywhere near the house mm -hmm. anytime that night. They couldn't. I was yeah. in the bar, you know, drinking. Mm -hmm. Not one witness. And the uh, trace evidence expert even said, well, my lawyer asked her what you know, what physical evidence did she find mm -hmm. to link me with the crime? And she said there was no physical evidence to link me with the murder. Period. Wow. She mm -hmm. said that on the stand. I mean, I don't, the jury found me guilty because I guess I'm the one sitting there. Mm -hmm. So what I've read is that one of the main things that the jury hung on was when the police officer, or the detective told you, hey, um, you know, you might get indicted. You called your mom to let her know what's going on. And you said, um, I'll call you when they indict me. And they harped on this. But later on, they found out that you said if. So it was this huge thing well, with the when and if part. Here's how that whole conversation came about. Mm -hmm. when, they, when I was in jail, they questioned me and they wanted to search my house. And they went and took all my clothes out of my house. I mean, they took all my clothes. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to check them. So when they let me out of jail, they said they weren't going to charge me. They let me go after the three days of questioning and checking my alibi. And uh, it was about a week later. I mean, they got my clothes. I ain't got no clothes. So I call him up. And I say, hey, man, when can I get my clothes? But uh, uh -huh. when I call and ask for my clothes, he said, yeah, you can get them tomorrow. He said, I, I, he said I'm going to go pick them up tonight. You can come down tomorrow and get them. Mm -hmm. I said, all right. And he said, you know, uh, there's a chance... Uh, you could be indicted. I said, yeah, okay, man, right. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. He said, no. He said, you could be, he said, I'm serious. He said, I just want to let you know, you know, it's a possibility. He said, you you, you could be and still be indicted for this. And I said, well, okay, if if they indict me, call me, and you know, because mm -hmm. I'll let my mom and everybody know what's going on, and, and then I'll come in. And he said, yeah, okay. And that was the conversation mm -hmm. we had. There was no when, or, or anything. I yeah. still thought he was just—I don't know what. Maybe he lied at he lied at trial. Got on mm -hmm. the witness stand and lied. And we found out eight years after I was convicted, they had the the statement that I made. He had wrote wrote it down the way it happened. And he, during the trial in the beginning, he said that he didn't have it, right? Right. They said there was no statement. So he, he says he never wrote it down. <laughs> right. It was just his word against yours. And then they found the statement later. Yeah, they had it. They just didn't, yeah, they didn't give it up. It. Yeah. Yeah. And they said there at, at trial, there was a lot of little things like that. And they said I had the same blood type as the killer. And they were saying... So back know, in 1984, they don't have DNA testing no. yet. They only have uh, matching a blood type. Right. Which a lot of people are the same blood type. Right. But back then, they thought it was like super rare that someone would be the same type of blood type, right? But, right. If you got the same blood, they're saying they know the killer's blood type mm -hmm. is what they're saying by this. They're saying, and I got the killer's blood type. The truth is, I had the victim's same blood type as the victim. Yeah. I don't, they don't know who, if they do know the killer's blood type, they never told us. Gotcha. But, and then the jury is like, well, they, they got his blood type. Uh, he has priors. Um, his 
alibi people are drinking she was murdered after 2 30 right when the bars right. were closing you know but i mean honestly them thinking that the blood type matched back then it was like a slam dunk they right, probably yeah. were just, it's like dna today yeah you know, they found his blood at the crime scene mm -hmm. he did it you yeah know? so i yeah i don't know if the jury i can't uh, i've never been mad about their decision i just never understood it Mm -hmm. I've never been able to understand. I just, I want, how in the world could they convict me? I just, that's always bothered mm -hmm. me. Before trial, I was. Have any offer, jurors ever reached out to you after all these years? No, mm -hmm. no. Before trial, they offered me a deal. They wanted to, they offered me, I could have got 20 to life, you know. Mm -hmm. And what for? I didn't do nothing. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's just a lot of things that you can't fight. When you're sitting there and they're pointing you out, it's hard to fight them, you mm -hmm. know? Why would you be sitting there is what the jury's thinking. Because yeah. they didn't arrest any of them. Yeah, and there's no one else that they're looking into. <laughs> right, so. Um, what, is, what was going through, like, your mind during the trial? Like, what are you thinking about? Well, I, as I'm, I'm listening to, you know, the witnesses, and nobody's saying anything bad about me, really. Mm -hmm. They, they bring in these 19 witnesses and not one of them could point a finger at me and say mm -hmm. I did anything or they could say that they found evidence that I did anything. Mm -hmm. they, they were mostly uh, people talking about the crime scene and how they found it, mm -hmm. cops and, uh, you know, EMTs and, mm -hmm. and those people. And there was a whole bunch of craziness that went on where they didn't uh, dust for fingerprints in the bathroom. They didn't check the bathroom, all sorts of things like that. They didn't go in the basement. And then I even read somewhere that they had one of the neighbors collect some of the evidence and bring it to the the police officer. Yeah, I heard about that afterwards too. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about this at mm -hmm. trial. They, at trial, they hid everything from mm -hmm. my lawyers. But I, I really, I, I didn't expect to be found guilty. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the sheriffs who escort me in and out of the courtroom back to jail. Uh, you know, they see trials all the time. Mm -hmm. And he's at the end of the trial when the jury went in, he saw, man, don't worry, you're, you're going to be okay. You'll be home. Yeah. You'll be all right. One of the sheriffs said that to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was wrong. Yeah. So. What, uh, what was going through your mind when you got convicted? Oh, wow, man. I was in shock. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really was. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock for, I don't know, for probably a year mm -hmm. i mean seriously yeah. I, I i couldn't think straight all right guys now a word from our sponsor BetterHelp. it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem solving mode when faced with a challenge in life but when you learn how to find your own solution there's really no better feeling a therapist can help you become a better problem solver making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or small if you listen to the show, you know that I always encourage people to go to therapy. A lot of people think that you have to go to therapy only if you're on drugs or suicidal, but the reality is, is that anybody can go to therapy at any point in time and get a better perspective on their life. Oftentimes, there's no better person than a professional therapist that can help you see the good things in your life. Oftentimes, or friends or family, all these outside people when they say things that maybe they're saying the same thing a therapist is saying, it just doesn't reach me. And for me, a third party that is unbiased is probably the best person to give me advice. Therapy has changed my life. It's changed my friends' lives around me. 
And oftentimes you don't need to go forever, but I went to therapy for like six or eight months, once a week. And I truly believe it was one of the most impactful things that I've done since getting clean. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com exit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com exit. Thank you guys. Have a good day. And did you immediately go on death row? Yeah, like, uh, let's see. They had to, I got found guilty. Then a couple of weeks later, they did mm -hmm. the hearing on uh, uh, the death sentence or not. Mm -hmm. And see, that's another thing. When you're innocent, you can't put up evidence of mitigation. Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, if you commit a crime, what, the, the way it's set up, when someone who's guilty of murder and they, they have the death penalty on them, they can bring witnesses in to say, hey, look, when he was a kid, he got hit in the head with a bat. He's mm -hmm. got, you know, he's got issues. And it's legitimate. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes there's people that have issues, you know, that commit crimes. Mm -hmm. But if you're innocent, what are you, you going to tell them? They already thought I'm guilty. When I get up there and say, hey, I didn't do it. Yeah. You know, so no, yeah. It's too late. Yeah. At least when you confess to something you did, right. you can say, well, I did it because of X, Y, and Z, and I had a troubled past or whatever. When you didn't do it, there's nothing really to say. Yeah, you know, you get up there and say, please spare my life. But I never said that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what was death row like compared to the first time you went to prison? Oh, it's well, totally different. Yeah, death row today is completely different than what it was like back then. almost 40 years mm -hmm. ago. I mean, yeah, it was new. Death row was new then, and, and it was locked down. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. You got out one hour a day. One hour a day. Three showers a week, mm -hmm. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You're locked up on weekends. And yeah, that was it. What was that first year like for you? Were you thinking that you're getting out? Like, are you waking up every day thinking that they're going to come and get you? No, I'm waking up every day reading law books. Wow. That's what I did all, all day, every mm -hmm. day. I read uh, from 1984 to 1994, I went through every federal reporter, second reporter they had mm -hmm. at Lucasville from uh, 1957 to 1994. When I sent for some more books, they said, well, we don't, those haven't been printed yet. So I went through that many law books. I wow. mean, I was, I was, yeah, I was looking, trying to figure out because I, I couldn't figure out how, how, how I could be there. I just mm -hmm. couldn't understand it. It, mm -hmm. drove, it drove me crazy. And when did you get uh, linked up with Dale, who uh, has been your, your attorney on the case since 1991? How did yeah. you guys after uh, after the Ohio Supreme Court mm -hmm. denied my appeal? Uh, I went to the federal court, and uh, the Ohio the Ohio public defenders wanted to uh, fight to save your life, mm -hmm. and I don't care about that. I'm saying, no, you got to, I want to go home. Mm -hmm. You got to fight to prove I'm innocent. I didn't do this. That right, you're right. like, That's, you know, I'm trying to get out of here. Right. I didn't yeah. do it. I don't care about the sentence. You know, if they're mm -hmm. not going to let me go, they can kill me. What do I want to spend my life in prison? Yeah. Walking around for the next uh, 40, 50 years with mm -hmm. people. I didn't commit no crime with a bunch of, you know, this ain't right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I had a, uh, execution date in, uh, 
1991. They did give you an execution date. Yeah, I think it was November 12th or 5th or somewhere around there. So, and like, what does that feel like knowing that like you have an execution date? Yeah, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, I, I can't explain it. It was like, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, I can, you know, I, I use this all the time when people say, I don't know how you, you know, get through each day. I tell them, I said, well, I can bang my head on the wall and I can scream and yell. I can do that every day and mm -hmm. holler, please let me out, let me out. And at, by the end of the day, I'm going to have a sore head mm -hmm. and a sore throat. It ain't going to do no good. So you just got to deal. Were you in prison telling people like, I'm innocent, I didn't do it? Or yeah, you? yeah. And well, what, what would people say? Well, <laughs> I don't, you know, they were polite. <laughs> Point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not, uh, it's not like they were, they believed me or didn't believe me. Mm -hmm. They were like, yeah, okay, I don't, you know, I don't know if they believe me or not, it's yeah. hard to say. Uh -huh. But they know now, because yeah. I got, I got out. You got out. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, what's going on with uh, your current wife at the time? Is she supporting you when you're in prison? The, my, at the time? At the time, well, yeah, she, you know, she was 22 with a baby. Mm. And her husband just got sentenced to death. So she had to move home, get a job, support herself and the mm -hmm. baby. And she stuck with me until the Ohio Supreme Court denied my appeals. You know, we're thinking I'm going to get out. But How many years was that? Three years. Three years. Yeah, and then it was time for her. She had to move on. She had to get her life together. And me, I had to, you know, I had to fight this. Wow. He had a, a lawyer appointed uh, by the uh, court uh, up in Cleveland, uh, and he actually had two lawyers. Uh, and those lawyers had just completed another death penalty case, uh, and they jumped into to Tony's case. Mm -hmm. um, they really did not do uh, much to prepare for trial. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, the jury convicted Tony and, and sentenced him to death. Uh, he appealed that decision, um, and in 1987, uh, the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, in a 4-3 opinion, uh, upheld his conviction and death sentence. Uh, wow. That meant that, that three justices uh, had problems mm -hmm. uh, with his conviction and, and had reasonable doubt uh, about his guilt. Wow. And then later on, the Supreme justices have written since then letters stating that they believe that after all these years, it's like one of the only cases that they kind of regret the way they voted. The justice who wrote the majority opinion mm -hmm. uh, sent a letter to the Ohio Parole Board in 1996 uh, saying that he now has had uh, residual doubt uh, about Tony's guilt wow. and recommended to the uh, parole board uh, that they commute his death sentence. And uh, in uh, March of 2022, uh, the justice who wrote the dissenting opinion uh, sent a letter to the parole board mm. and said that uh, Tony, um, that he believed that uh, uh, there was doubt uh, about Tony's guilt and he should be released from prison. Wow. Can you 
explain the if and when statement that was such a big deal? Sure. When uh, the police were uh, conducting their investigation and mm -hmm. interviewing Tony, and he voluntarily um, uh, met with the police on a number of occasions, Tony said to the police officer, um, if uh, I'm indicted, can you call me and let me know uh, so I could tell my mother? Mm -hmm. um, at trial, that detective testified uh, that when Tony called, uh, he said, when I'm indicted, uh, can you give me a call? Kind of implying that that was some type of form of admission. The, the detective said he was shocked. Uh, the prosecutor said, uh, Apanovich said, when uh, he's indicted. And that suggests that, uh, that he was guilty. Uh, the defense lawyer um, made an issue of it when mm -hmm. the detective made the statement. He asked the judge to um, uh, order the state to turn over uh, the notes uh, that the detective took. Uh, the judge uh, said no, but ordered the prosecutor to look through the documents to see if there was uh, something written mm -hmm. uh, about what Tony said. The prosecutor avowed uh, there is nothing uh, in the record uh, to reflect Tony's statement. What we found uh, a couple years later when we got documents under the State Public Records Act uh, was that, in fact, there was a document. Mm -hmm. uh, and that document said, if uh, I'm indicted. So, yeah, so they actually did come out with records stating that it was written and documented that he said if. Yes. Uh, so uh, the detective uh, made a false statement mm -hmm. uh, when he testified and the prosecutor uh, made a false statement to the judge when he said, I looked through these documents and I did not see any mm -hmm. reference to that statement. It's just a very dark environment prison is. It's not a fun place to be. Uh, even when you visit it, when you leave, you almost want to take a shower and, and shake that. The things that you've seen away and, and yet uh, living your life there um, is, is what the ha should happen to the ha most heinous crimes. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the bill that you introduced, 586, and how that would affect not just this case, but future case going forward? Well, what it would allow is your attorney to present the evidence. Uh, period. It would give more leeway for how new evidence can be presented. Uh, and uh, the second part of the bill uh, would allow it to be retroactive, which is the harder nut to crack, because in Ohio, retroactivity in law is very rare. All parties would have to agree to it. And currently, the county prosecutors across Ohio don't want to do that. And we have no way to get him out of that environment without the governor absolving, giving clemency. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What was the first, you know, couple of years like? What are you doing? What's your day-to-day like? What's the, you know? Reading law books and working out. That's it. Seriously, that's mm-hmm. it, man. I spent uh, from 1984 when I got to death row, uh, I spent all that time uh, reading law books and writing letters to my lawyers. When, mm-hmm. when Dale got put on my case in 1991, he came to see me and he said, look, you write me, I'm going to write you back within, you know, give me seven, eight business days to mm-hmm. write you back, and I will. Dale was different. He cared and about his job. And, uh, yeah, and... I would write him constantly and I'm sending him stuff and I'm trying to discuss issues and that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I gave him a hard time. Yeah. And I feel like people that, um, are guilty at the end of the day, after a couple of years, they probably just accept the crime or accept the time that they get, you know? So I think that the fact that you're just continuously trying day in and day out shows that, you know, don't have a guilty conscience that you just really feel like, this is a total injustice to you. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And especially now. I mean, you know, when, when I got out, uh, I didn't. I, I wasn't hating nobody. I wasn't hating the police, the mm-hmm. prosecutors. I, was, I, I, I felt vindicated. Mm-hmm. You know, all these years I've been saying I didn't do it. And they had that DNA evidence and they hid it for mm-hmm. 10 years. I could have got out in 26, in, in, in 2001. Which is like 16 years before I got out, almost. Huh. Yeah, you know? it's crazy. They hid that evidence. So let's back up and talk about the slides. So I know that in I think it was like 2008 they tested them. When did they first? No, 2000, 2001 they tested those slides. In 2001, so at the lab, I believe this is just what I've read. So at the lab, there is uh, slides from the murder that they find in a drawer. Yeah, they said they found some. They found them in a drawer, but that's not. Yeah, that's not the slides. That's not the DNA that set me free. Okay. In 1989, uh, the federal court in a rape case in Florida, they Mm -hmm. used DNA in Florida for the first time in the United States. Was in 1985 in Florida. Okay. In 1989, he had been appealing it. His lawyer said this is junk science because it's the first time ever used in this country. And, uh, uh, but in other countries, they've been doing this? Well, in England, they mm-hmm. used it in 1983 to prove a man was innocent and to catch a guilty man mm-hmm. who had raped and killed some uh, young girls mm-hmm. in, in uh, England. Okay. So in 1989, the federal court said this is good science, and yes, it can be used. Mm-hmm. So uh, my lawyer, Tom Shaughnessy, three days after that decision came out, filed a request for DNA testing. I was the very first person on Ohio's wow. death row to request DNA testing. Okay. And they started lying right then and there. The state did. The prosecutors say, oh, we threw it away. We don't have to keep it. Once his state appeals were over, we could throw it away. And in the federal courts wow. have ruled they can do that. Wow. So in 1984... They're legally allowed to throw away evidence after yeah that hasn't been tested for DNA. Well, up till uh, up till they that weren't point, doing yeah. that. Yeah, they didn't have to. So from 1984 up to 2000 and what you didn't they you thought that this evidence wasn't even existed. We didn't know it existed. They knew it existed. They'd been lying. Mm-hmm. See, they kept saying we don't have it. We don't have it. We threw it away. 
I think it's Youngblood versus Arizona was a federal case where the courts agreed that, yeah, states don't have to because with all the crimes every year, would just they, they'd have to rent warehouses and mm-hmm. stuff, so they don't have to. Wow. Yeah, so uh, we didn't know, but they had uh, they had this. They, they know they had the DNA. They mm-hmm. finally sent it out to get tested in 2000. What prompted them to send, finally send it out? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, they're fight, it was fighting my appeals in federal court. I'm still telling them I'm innocent. I'm mm-hmm. still arguing. So uh, they eventually say, okay, let's send it out for DNA testing. Well, they didn't tell us. Okay, so they tested it and didn't tell you that they tested it. They didn't tell us it existed at all. Wow. They just went ahead and did a secret testing, uh-huh. got the results, and thought, oh, wow, he is innocent. Hide that. Mm-hmm. So when the results came back, just to be clear, it was not a match. Oh, absolutely not. Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Not me. No, 100% not me. And they hid that. In the federal court, We were uh, there was a, a subpoena for DNA records. The federal judge sent it out. And uh, Dale was uh, deposing the medical examiner. And she brought the medical, her, she brought her records with her. Mm-hmm. The DNA records, all her records with her. Dale didn't tell me. All Dale told me was, he said, you know, we got some more DNA records. He said, uh, it might be something good. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And he kept telling me that for weeks. I, I called him every week and bugged yeah. him. I swear, <laughs> I drove him crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one day they told me, they said, Panovich uh, on a speaker, you got an attorney visit. I said, what? I said, I just talked to my attorney Friday. I said, who is it? Because I'm thinking it might be the one from Cleveland. Okay. And it was Dale. Mm-hmm. So I go out there, I said, what's up, Dale? He hands me a, 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 a document, and he said, a report. He said, here, read this. So I start reading the first page, and I got through the first paragraph, and he said, okay, okay. He said, you see what that is? I said, yeah, it's a DNA report. What, what's going on? He said, well, now go to paragraph 12. So I turn the pages, I go to paragraph 12, and they're talking about the DNA sample, one such and such, whatever, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah is not a match to Anthony Aponovich. Wow. I said, wait a minute, dude. So that right there proves that you didn't do the rape and you didn't do the murder. Right, right. One one person committed this crime. Yeah. Man, when I read, I couldn't believe that. And he flew there. What year was this? This was uh, 2009. He flew up to, he was... By then, he had been in Arizona working at the federal public defenders, mm-hmm. and he flew up to show me that. And uh, it still took a while to get me home, you know, about How long? seven years. <laughs> seven years after they found the DNA slides. Right. Well, the prosecutor fought it every bit of the way. I mean, And it's the same prosecutor from uh, 1984? No, no. He, he retired and, and died of a heart attack six months later in 97. Huh. Yeah. Oh, my God. So what happens when, uh, so seven years later, it goes to the Supreme Court? No, no, we, uh, we go to the trial court. Okay, so you have trial court, and then the, what does the judge say? Well, you remember the slides you were talking about? Mm-hmm. You said the slides they found in the drawer. In the drawer, okay. Well, they've been saying for years that they have slides that they tested that doesn't clear me, so that proves I'm guilty, mm-hmm. okay, DNA. So we got a DNA hearing set up. We filed for a, a hearing on the DNA, 2014. And uh, we finally get into court, and the judge 
you know, we got our expert there. We've got their documents that they mm -hmm. tested. And the judge uh, uh, asked the prosecutor, okay, you got DNA? Because they're, they're telling the judge they got DNA in everything they file to okay. fight to stop me from getting a hearing. Okay. And the judge said, you, how many days are you going to need? And they said, oh, no, Your Honor, we're not bringing it in. See, what they have is not real. It's not what they're saying it is, and they know it. They can't mm -hmm. bring it into court, and they don't. Mm -hmm. At a DNA hearing to prove I'm guilty of a crime that you're saying you've got DNA that proves I'm guilty, that's where you bring the DNA evidence in. Mm -hmm. But see, if they bring it in there, the judge is going to end up throwing it out because it's not what they're telling everybody it is. Mm -hmm. They could say they have DNA. They could say anything they want out of their mouth. They can file a motion in court and make any claim they want. Mm -hmm. But when you come to court, bring the evidence, and they told the judge, no, they're not doing, they don't have any DNA to bring in. Wow. But we had their DNA. Mm -hmm. And the judge said, without a doubt, it proved I was innocent. Welcome to the Genesis House powered by the United Recovery Project, located in sunny South Florida. We offer drug and alcohol addiction treatment, as well as a major focus on dual diagnosis. Our addiction therapy programs include behavioral therapy, 12-step facilitation, psychotherapy, life skills training, and more. At our facility, you can expect a low client-to-staff ratio, daily group therapy, weekly one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions, and luxury amenities such as volleyball, basketball, pool, chiropractor, personal trainer, yoga, massage therapy, and more. Contact the United Recovery Project today and let's create a better tomorrow. There's no doubt whatsoever. And that's when they let you out. And that's when I got out. When did you get out from that trial? How many days after? Well, from that hearing, I was going to get out within a couple of days, mm -hmm. uh, but the prosecutor appealed it. I spent a year. Another year after in the county jail. After the judge had said, "There's right. no way you could have done this." Right. I still had to spend a year in jail, mm -hmm. and uh, a year later, the appeals court said, "Oh yeah, it's, this is fine. Yeah, the judge did the right thing. The evidence, the DNA proves he didn't do it." Mm -hmm. So I got out that day. When they did that, wow. I got out that afternoon. It was on a Friday, too. Tell me what getting out was like. Oh, man. I can't. Wow. That was the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I got out. It was a, I remember it was 745 at night because I remember looking at the clock as I walked down the hall to exit the Justice Center in mm -hmm. Cleveland. My ex-wife from my first wife, I've been married three times. My first wife, uh -huh. we were teenagers, got married and divorced as teenagers. Her and her husband were out there waiting for me. Wow. So, so let me tell you something. So, you know, so people listening, these are people that probably know you the most intimate on anybody on the planet. Oh, absolutely. And they have zero, zero inkling that they think that you did it and they wouldn't be supporting you after oh, all yeah. these years. Yeah. So the people that love you and know you since childhood are there 32 years later. Yeah. Wow. This is a... a we were married and divorced within like about a year. So you, know? you guys were only married a year and after 32 well, years. Well, we do have a son together. Oh, yeah. yeah. So she's been in your life. We've talked yeah. on a, I, yeah, but my life, I was in prison. I was mm -hmm. locked up, you know, and I, I talked to her, I'd call, 
I'd talk to her, I'd talk to my son, I'd talk mm-hmm. to her other two daughters at, at her house. You know, we were friends. She got married. I became friends with her husband. And uh, I went and lived with them when I got out. So when you got out, they, they let you to live Yeah, they with took them. me out to Canton mm-hmm. and I moved in with them. Wow. I, yeah. 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 So, I mean, people. like, yeah, if anybody was to think that you actually committed this crime, they're not letting you stay at their house. Oh, yeah. Diane you know? and uh, Ken, they wouldn't let nobody in their house. Yeah. He's, he's got a, uh, his daughter's a special needs uh, wow. autistic. Wow. And, uh, oh, me and her were, we're cool. Wow. Yeah. So, tell me, when you get out, what's the drive like? Where do you guys go when you first get out? Well, well, we headed to their house. Straight to, to their house? In, in Canton. And, I'm, she's showing me how to use the phone. I've never used one of them. Like oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, she calls my uh, uh, cousin. Uh huh. And and well, we're crying. And uh, so we're talking. And uh, the whole the whole ride home, I'm talking to my cousin, and I didn't even realize that an hour had gone by, and now we're pulling in the driveway. Wow. So we get to the uh, get to the house, and I reach over to open the door, and I'm like, "How do I get out of here?" I couldn't find, you know, the door handles the way they had them. They weren't like the old cars, you know. You pulled you it up. Pull it? Yeah, it's up under there somewhere. You, you gotta, gotta flip it up or something. <laughs> yeah. So you can open the car door. I, I didn't know how to get out of the car. Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, they had to show me. <laughs> uh huh. And uh, yeah, we went in the house, and the, one of the very first things was uh, they made me a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and they gave me a spoon for my sugar. And I couldn't believe how heavy that spoon was, man. Because you've used the plastic. Plastic for 32 years. Wow. You know? It was it was a, it was a surreal moment. You know? uh-huh. And my daughter came out with my grandkid, my granddaughter, and uh, friends showed up. I mean, we were up to like 2:30 in the morning, three o'clock, and we finally everybody left and. Mm-hmm. We went to bed and I was up at 6.30 in the morning again, you know, yeah. and I was wide awake. And, I'm, uh-huh. and it's really weird. This first morning, I'm, I, I get a cup of coffee and uh, uh, Ken, Diane's husband, he's sitting in the lounge chair watching the news. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, I walk over to the sliding doors that lead out onto the deck and I'm standing there and I'm looking at trees and grass, something you don't get to see a lot of. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, he said, you know, you can... You can open that door and go out if you want to. <laughs> wow. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I get it. yeah, okay. So I opened the door up, and uh, ooh, that was... Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> when I got out there, I'm standing there with the coffee, and I'm looking mm-hmm. and I got tears running down it was unreal I mean I was in prison in jail and I woke up a free man mm-hmm. uh, finally yeah yeah what's uh what's the first thing you ate when you got out cheeseburger cheeseburger with that cup of coffee oh yeah yeah <laughs> uh how did that taste? Oh, it was, yeah, it was good. It was good. Real hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was, uh, so you were out for two and a half years, a free yeah. man. What did you do in those two and a half years? Uh, no, I, uh, uh, 
Well, the, the first six months, I, I lived with Diane and Ken. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Beth, my wife, now, I had known her for 20 years. Yeah. She had been visiting me all the time. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting love story. Yeah, yeah. So how did you meet Beth? When she was in college uh, learning, she was she had, uh, uh, was doing a paralegal course. Mm-hmm. And one of her assignments was to write about a case in Ohio, a criminal case, mm-hmm. and, and write a, a, a synopsis of it or something, mm-hmm. short story or whatever you call it. And she saw my case, read it, and wrote me and said, I, I, I read your case. I read... I just had to write. Mm-hmm. Um, she explained she's doing it. She said, "I just don't understand. If you know, if you don't want to write, I understand." She said, "But I don't understand how you're there. What happened? How did that happen? Because when you, if you look, at, if you look at the evidence, there is none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of smoke and mirrors and finger yeah. pointing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's it. And that's how we started. That was like right around 2000, you know, and we." Became friends, and wow. ever since we've been together. And uh, six months after I got out, I asked her to marry me, and she said, "Yeah, are you sure, man?" Yeah. She didn't want to get. She didn't. We didn't want to get married while I was in prison because mm-hmm. that's a whole different relationship. And when I first got out, of course, she came to the house, and and she said, "Look, you know, you gotta. You're not normal yet." right you got to become a human being again and Mm -hmm. and then we'll we'll talk about it see i didn't get to raise i didn't get to raise my daughter i didn't get to raise my son Uh, but i got to raise those two girls my granddaughters now Mm -hmm. and for those two and a half years i was out there that i got to be with them man that's like wow yeah we've talked to uh people that have known you for those two and a half years and you know, no one's saying that you were bitter or angry. And, yeah. you know, it seems yeah. like you're just happy to be free. Well, yeah. You know, I, I I don't know why. I just, I wasn't bitter. I wasn't angry. I was I was pleased that I finally, uh, vind- I felt vindicated. You know, mm-hmm. I finally proved my innocence. And I'd been telling people for years. And even though they, you know, the prosecutor could have did the right thing and I could have got out many years earlier i wasn't going to live today in prison Mm -hmm. or in court with the prosecutor arguing in my head about what they did wrong Mm -hmm. when i woke up in the morning i was living that day to the fullest Mm -hmm. you know uh that's the way i looked at life out there when i you know just did you what has helped you mold that type of mentality i don't know maybe my faith in god probably is what i'm figuring you're a religious man oh uh I don't know. I wouldn't say religious. I would say it's strong Believe in faith, God. very okay. strong in faith. You know? um, when uh, when you realized that you were going back to prison, what was that like? Well, I didn't realize it until they kidnapped me. Here's mm-hmm. what happened. I found out that I was probably going to get locked back up. We'd have to go back, have more hearings because the Ohio Supreme Court said that it was the uh, DNA didn't matter. And, uh, the and they basically said that the judge didn't have the jurisdiction. I'll tell you exactly what okay. they said. <laughs> I did bring something. Okay. This, this is, this is what, uh, I got a quote from them, the Ohio Supreme court. They said, we recognize that it may seem unduly formalistic or unfair 
to foreclose the trial court from considering a post-conviction claim that is based on DNA testing that the state itself procured. But it is the prerogative of the General Assembly, not this court, to set the terms by which an offender may pursue post-conviction relief. What that is, see, what that, there's the law for DNA states very clearly that I have to ask the prosecutor, would you test the DNA to see if I'm innocent? Because I say I'm innocent, mm -hmm. right? And then I can use that DNA to get out. In court. But because the prosecutor did a sneaky DNA uh, Without test, telling you. right, yeah. and didn't tell nobody and hid it, I didn't ask them. They're saying because I didn't ask them to do it because they did it on their own secretively, I couldn't use it. The hearing we had on the DNA was moot, didn't mm -hmm. happen. What do you think happened um, later on that, you know, kept him in, in jail for so long? Well, um, in any criminal case uh, and in a death penalty case, there are uh, a number of appeals uh, mm -hmm. that take place. And, and uh, we pursued um, those appeals uh, in Tony's case. And uh, all along the way, uh, the courts um, did not take a deep dive uh, into the facts or uh, relied on procedural limitations mm -hmm. uh, to avoid uh, looking um, at the facts closely. Okay, so in 2000, the staff at the lab, uh, the medical examiners find slides just randomly and then they asked to test it themselves, right? Yes, uh, <laughs> they asked uh, their boss if they could test uh, mm -hmm. the material. They did not call us. They knew that uh, uh, we represented Tony. There was mm -hmm. active litigation going on at the time. Uh, so uh, they do the testing uh, and they uh, hide those results. Uh, and it wasn't until 2008 uh, when they turned those uh, results over to us. Through a subpoena? Uh, through, through discovery, through discovery. in, in uh, federal uh, habeas corpus proceedings. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what we learned uh, was that uh, those test results uh, excluded Tony from uh, the rape. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we, we finally got into state court to litigate that issue. And in 2015, uh, a judge found uh, that that DNA evidence, and because it was a single assailant theory uh, during the trial, uh, Tony was also excluded from the murder. Mm -hmm. I got in touch with his attorney and I met with the attorney. I investigated the case, and then I have met several times with Tony himself. Mm -hmm. And I know that he's innocent. The unfortunate thing is, is that uh, the DNA that was there at the uh, uh, at the initial trial that they chose, the, the prosecutor chose not to showcase, show not to use, uh, that would have proven his innocence at the beginning, uh, was finally discovered in an appeal through his wow. attorney. When the attorney was uh, giving a, having a deposition with the county coroner, and it clearly proved that if it's a rape murder case and it's a single individual, if you didn't do the rape, 
guess what? You didn't do the murder. And so he was uh, released with prejudice back into society. And so it was three years out, got married, became part of a wonderful family. Uh, and the prosecutors in, in Cuyahoga County were livid. And uh, they were looking, since it's with prejudice, if you can find some way to get him back into prison, you can do it. And they discovered the heir was that Tony didn't request the DNA. And with that, he was thrown back to death row with no escape. We've gotten it wrong 11 times that we know of. We have 11 death row exonerees in Ohio, okay? That's 11 times that we've already almost executed an innocent person. People that spent 10, 20, 30 years on death row. Our appeals process in Ohio is not set up to find mistakes. It's set up to look at the procedure and make sure that the procedure was followed accurately. They say the General Assembly in Ohio has to change the law. Well. And hopefully that's going to happen. Uh, representatives uh, uh, Gene Schmidt and Terrence Upchurch sponsored a bill to to amend the law, mm -hmm. to change it so that it doesn't matter who yeah, does the DNA test. Yeah, because if it gets found on the sidewalk, who, who cares? You know, if they have DNA testing saying that you're right. innocent, it shouldn't matter who asked for it or who got it or how someone found it, you know? Right, it shouldn't. And that's what this that's what they're doing now. They're, they're going to change I also that. read that two people, I think they were um, Supreme Court justices, had wrote letters stating that they believe now with more evidence that you're innocent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, ain't that something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so two people that were involved in the Supreme Court. People that, yeah, that, you know, turned denied my appeal, didn't den Yeah, so these are Supreme Court justices that denied <laughs> your appeal, have individually, on their own, wrote letters stating that now that all this new evidence is out, that they truly believe that you should be released and you're innocent. Right. Absolutely. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, yeah, that, uh, that I thought was, I mean, I, I'm almost at a loss for words how to, how to describe yeah. what I feel because, you know, I mean, these are an Ohio Supreme Court justice. We're not talking about some clerk or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. This, he's, he's a guy that looked at my case and said, no, I couldn't get a new trial because the, the evidence was sufficient. Mm -hmm for finding me guilty at, the, at that time mm -hmm. before the DNA came out, you know, and, and all the other evidence that they lied mm -hmm. about too as well. What has it been like the second time coming back to prison? The, the ones that see me come back, they just uh, can't believe, what are you doing back? Why? Well, I, I, I thought the DNA and, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I tell them, I say, yeah, me too, I don't know. And uh, how many years have you been back now? We're going on four years, man. Going on four years. Yeah. It's harder this time. These four years are harder than the first 32. Mm -hmm. Because those first 32, I'm fighting to prove my innocence, you know? This time, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in limbo for four years. Why? Why am I still sitting here? I don't understand it. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we filed a, a petition for... Uh, uh, clemency. I'm asking for one, one of two things. I, I would like a pardon because I'm innocent and the evidence shows it. And uh, at the very least, just give me time served, reduce my sentence to time served and just let me go back home. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I didn't do nothing. We're not really trying to find 
whether someone is guilty or not. We're trying to find whether or not the, the court proceeding was, was according to you know, what we say it's supposed to be. What is going on now with the case and what do you hope happens to get him back out? In April of, of 2022, we filed a clemency application mm -hmm. with the Ohio Parole Board. Uh, and in that application, uh, we laid out the facts of the case and, and made the argument that uh, there is an innocent man uh, on death row. We asked the board to recommend to the governor of Ohio uh, mm -hmm. that Tony uh, should be released from prison, uh, that his uh, death sentence uh, should be commuted to time served, uh, and that he should be released. And so uh, I would only hope that the governor would uh, have in his heart, or the next governor would have in their heart, uh, and, and in their mind and in their soul, uh, the same conviction that I have that Tony is innocent and he must be released. I will do everything in my power to try to get you out of here as soon as I, you know, we can. And uh, I'll try to get as many people to watch this podcast and to get your story out there. I'm, I'm coming home again. I truly believe God did not uh, bring that DNA to light for me to be here. This is hell has an exit, and um, unfortunately, you're still battling in hell, yeah. and you got out before, and uh, we're going to make sure that you get out again and you stay out. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you. A lot of people ask me, like, oh, could you tell he was innocent? Like, I don't believe that you could just look at someone in the eyes and tell that they were innocent, but there's so many facts in the case that regardless of what Anthony's demeanor was like, it just proves that this man didn't do the crime. This was the first time where like, we really felt like we were on a mission. And the fact that we were able to visit this man and see him in prison, to talk to him and share this story on the podcast, on a platform that, you know, saves lives in my opinion, you know, is one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of.